episode of the Mystery Bible on Podcast. This is episode 20, and even more importantly, this is very close to one year from when episode one launched. It's amazing to look back at the last year. Dan and Brian and I were reflecting before this recording about what this podcast has meant, how things have changed over the last year, and just how grateful we are for everything that's been happening and how much fun we've had doing this podcast and how meaningful it's been in our lives. Uh, I know that the episodes have been a little slower coming out recently. In many ways, that's a positive thing because it means we've been really engaged and busy with other fun things and other uh, meaningful teaching opportunities and that sort of stuff. Rest assured, we're still creating these podcasts. We're still engaged with the content. We're still glad you're here. We think about you guys often. We think about our audience. We think about the next episodes. It's just been a little harder to get everybody in the same place to get the episodes done. But we enjoy it, and we are happy when it does happen, and tonight is one of those nights. So tonight we're going to be picking up with some of the Timothy Alvarino topics. I think we're going to talk a little bit about some current events and some things that we haven't really discussed for the last couple of episodes. Last time we talked about current events, I think it was two episodes ago, Brian was uh, not able to be on that once. So we want to give him a chance to share some of his thoughts. And Dan and I had talked about uh, David Grush and some of the whistleblower things that were just hitting the air at that time. And the congressional uh, reviews of those things hadn't happened yet. So there's a lot to cover there. And then we'll be jumping into chapter nine and probably getting through some of chapter 10 uh, Birthright by Timothy Alperino. Always good material for worthwhile discussion. We hope you all enjoyed the last episode with Michael Kimmelman and the state of finance. I know that was a little outside of our normal vein, but I think it was relevant and helpful. And we did get some feedback that you all really enjoyed that. So we're glad you're here. We look forward to this upcoming conversation. We invite you to uh, get comfortable and join us for what almost always becomes a two-hour recording, but we'll, we'll see. We'll see what, what we've got in the tank for this one. I want to start by handing the mic over to Brian. And Brian, I think it's a good chance for you to share any thoughts on current events. Um, I know there's been a lot developing. I know you've heard some of the things Dan and I have discussed. I'm sure you have some opinions on Grush. Uh, there are other fun topics out there like flying aliens in the jungles of Peru and Peruvian miners with jetpacks. And if you guys don't know what those are, those are real things that are being talked about right now. And every day or every time one of these stories comes up, it's like, could this get any more bizarre? Uh, I think the answer is yes. I just don't know exactly how. So uh, we've got Brian Brown. We've got Dan Rundio. You've got myself, Joel Gein. And uh, we haven't had Brian much for the last couple of episodes. We want to hand the mic to him to kick it off with his rant on current events. Go for it, Brian. <laughs> hey, Joel. Thanks. Yeah, it has been pretty crazy. Uh, one of the things that I saw with interest was a website that was published by the Pentagon. And this is aaro.mil, www. And this site is, AARO stands for the All Domain Anomaly Resolution Office. And their mission statement on the front of their webpage is minimize technical and intelligence surprise by synchronizing scientific intelligence and operational detection, identification, attribution, and mitigation of unidentified anomalous phenomena in the vicinity of national security areas. And all that boils down to 
we're going to put information in here about UFOs. So this 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 came out recently after the whistleblower stuff with Grush, and they they put this up. And then the other thing that was going on was the you know three hour alien Mexico Congress live stream. Uh, I did not actually watch that yet myself, but it's interesting that another government agency just you know did a big push and got I'm sure a lot of viewers to to watch them and they had scientists that were talking about alien or alien uh, physiology and showing alien bodies and all this kind of stuff and that hasn't gotten a lot of positive press and even in the UFO community there's a lot of people who think it was mostly kind of a hoax and so then the thought that we have is why did they put that out when they put it out and what is the purpose behind putting that out? Even a few episodes ago, we talked about the ceremonies and the things that went along with the opening of the in CERN and for the, I believe, was it the Super Collider Project, Joel? Uh, there, well, there were the, the, some of the opening ceremonies, ceremonies we talked about was for the Goddard Tunnel in Switzerland, but there was plenty That's of right. weirdness at CERN as well. But there was just a lot of really strange things that went on with that ceremony. There was a lot of allusion to, you know, the old gods and, and, and all this kind of stuff. So it all kind of ties in this threefold strategy of the UFO phenomenon and extraterrestrials being part of the worldview that, you know, disproves in, in some people's minds, any kind of religious take on the universe with a creator and a creation of, of humans being or earth being preeminent, then we, we will talk about, you know, atheism and, and occultism and different things during the rest of this episode, but it all kind of ties together. And we start seeing more and more and more media coverage as well as governmental. In some ways it's, it's, I wouldn't say duplicitous. Maybe I would say duplicitous. The governments on one hand are saying, no, nah, we don't really find any evidence, but we'll go ahead and put up a website about the stuff that we think about and and then you have whistleblowers like Grush who are saying, "Oh no, no, we we do know a bunch of things, and I'm I'm going to tell what those things are." And so there's a lot of mixed messages. We've talked about that before. That there's some strategies about trying to confuse what's going on, and we'll we'll see in the chapter that we're doing tonight, um, in chapter ten. That's he just kind of lays it out in that strategy. You know, the first thing we do is we kill off God. And that that's atheism. But now atheism is is going to be disregarded and put off to the side. And then we will have a new religion with some sort of a superhuman, you know, we can all be gods kind of uh, kind of thing that will come out of that, which has been being pushed in certain circles of the world since the late 1800s very, very dramatically. So all the world events, all these current events, they're all just kind of coming together and it's following the narrative that, frankly, we kind of expect it to follow if you've been paying attention and, and listening to these things. So I guess that's about all I have to say on that matter. Plenty to digest. And uh, But by the way, I'll float out to the listeners. If Brian's audio quality and my audio quality sound a little different than usual, 
because Brian's having to record from a location on the road. And I am also not able to be in my normal studio. So hopefully the post-production, we can clean this up as much as possible. It's sounding okay right now. Uh, so yeah, Brian, I appreciate that overview of some some of the recent events. Uh, Dan, I want to give you a chance to chime in with any new thoughts. Last time we talked on, and under a recording about current events, we were discussing, is David Grush legit? Is this a real whistleblower? It seems like a lot of a lot of our concerns have been validated in terms of, you know, he hasn't been wholly discredited and he's certainly uh, suffered some for some of the uh, the things he's saying. And it seems like there is some organized effort at trying to get people to not pay attention to him. But the things he's saying keep keep getting uh, borne out, not to mention he went under oath in front of Congress and gave what I think was generally regarded as a very thoughtful testimony there's been quite a bit of ongoing discussion based on the things that he said very, very carefully. So anything you want to share on that, you're welcome to. And any other uh, recent events, including uh, Peruvian miner, outlaw Peruvian miners with jetpacks. Yeah. I mean, the stuff with the, the whistleblower seems to be, uh, you know, in line with other things that we uh, would assume to be true. So in my mind, Zuri still, I haven't done a ton of research on on him the peruvian minor thing that that story just seems crazy if there's really miners in peru that are being issued awesome jetpacks that don't really seem to be able to exist with our current technology then i want to go get a job in peru as a miner <laughs> i've always wanted an awesome jetpack <laughs> you and me both <laughs> Dan, can you, for those people who are, for, which is probably most people listening to this, who are going, what on earth are they talking about? Can you give any context on what this story, it, it's out there, but uh, what's going on with that story? Why, why are people even talking about Peruvian miners and the possibility of awesome jetpacks? Yeah. So if, if you look, you can find videos on it. But uh, basically, there was this village in Peru that says they were attacked by uh, aliens that were, you know, fly, you know, flying and floating through the jungle, and they were were shooting at them, and they could take a hit, you know, like shooting them with with shotguns, knowing they hit them. They were also bulletproof miners, um, so they were convinced they were aliens. That they were uh, abducting people and and causing problems. They called for the navy to come. The Peruvian navy did come. And, you know, did an investigation and the official line out of Peru, uh, the Peruvian government, is that these were illegal miners with jetpacks that were trying to scare the villagers so that they could get the gold out of the rivers in their, in their areas. So, so everything about this story is, uh, is, is, just amazing. And I want to say this sensitively because, you know, our, our heart goes out to the, the Peruvian miners, or sorry, not the Peruvian miners, but the Peruvian villagers. I don't think there are any Peruvian miners in this story. That's just the official government byline. And I don't think that the Peruvian miners have jetpacks, uh, but it is fun to say it. I want a bumper sticker that says sharks with laser beams and Peruvian miners with jetpacks or something along those lines. Um, What's sad is that the the villagers in this remote portion of Peru 
um, have suffered and there have been injuries and people missing. And clearly when you see the, uh, the interviews that they're scared to death and what they're saying is that for, and this is started in early August. So the story's a little bit dated, hasn't been fully resolved, but there was a series of reports in the first half of August where, um, there were this village in Peru had actually called in and made an official request for the Peruvian military to come into their region because the, these villagers were saying that night after night they were being invaded. Their village was being invaded and people were being taken and they were being attacked by what they are calling uh, in Spanish the Los Pelicaras, which translates into the face peelers. And that's about as pleasant as it sounds. Um, I've seen actual footage of of, of what is uh, uh, presumed to be um, the aftermath of similar attacks in in similar regions in Peru, and it is as awful as it sounds. If if you've seen cattle mutilations or something like that, imagine that on on a human body where uh, you know there's a human body that is entirely missing its face in a very clean cut surgical way that it leaves only the skull behind. It's pretty horrible stuff. And so there's a, that's been an ongoing legend in this area that there are beings that if you're not careful and if you're in the wrong place at the wrong time here in the Amazon jungle, then um, uh, one of the things you need to worry about in addition to everything else you need to worry about in the Amazon jungle are the Los Pelicanos. And they say that they are extraterrestrials, non-humans, um, seven foot tall and impervious to uh, typical gunfire and able to hover and float. And they even had what was presumably some uh, video footage. I saw some of the, what was alleged as the initial video footage of some of this. It's something, I mean, uh, uh, Peruvian villagers don't have extremely good uh, camera phones. They, they have smartphones sort of, but that, you know, they're cheap Chinese knockoff smartphones. And um, so you have some video that shows something out there that is taller than a person and moving around and looks an awful lot like a, uh, like a gray alien and certain freeze frames. If you, you know, freeze, enhance, zoom, et cetera, you can kind of get there. Um, but what is undeniable is that these, these villagers are scared to death of something that is recurring over and over and over and people have been hurt and they haven't been able to resolve it and they're convinced that it's non-human. Um, the official government byline was, oh, you know how miners sometimes like to chase native people off the lands in order for in order to scatter them for mining rights. These are uh, Peruvian miners who have been issued jetpacks who are floating through the night silently to attack these miners. Um, I don't think anybody actually or it's floating through the night to attack these villagers I, I don't think anybody actually believes it's it's uh you know peruvian miners and not anybody who's who's really familiar with the situation the story but are they are they extraterrestrials i don't know but uh it did get a lot of attention for a while and what's interesting was in the peruvian media and and other portions of the south american media this was taken very seriously it was reported on seriously it was um it was uh, it was reported on with you know with with a level of gravitas and they weren't making fun of the story by any means and they were treating this as an actual situation of los pelicanos or or something along those lines. Couple that with a day or two ago, the Mexican government having a three-hour live stream hearing, as Brian mentioned, where they're displaying what they are alleging to be actual 
um, actual alien body or mummified alien bodies from uh, uh, Nazca regions in Peru. So Peru keeps coming back into this. Now, for those of you who don't follow ufology, you know, the history of it, there's a tremendous amount of activity and reports that come out of South America, especially Mexico, uh, Brazil, Peru. Um, there's all kinds of stories going back, to, especially back into the uh, 60s, 70s, 80s, and even, and even up to today, all kinds of stories of uh, abductions and sightings, and the sightings are pretty much daily, and there, there's all kinds of stuff that comes out of there. Um, as far as so, so they're taking it seriously, and the and it's becoming culturally normal for news outlets and even the Mexican government to give a platform to these things. Now, when it comes to the Mexican government's platform that they gave a couple of days ago, I think that some of the people they included on that platform were, are unfortunately should not have been included, and I don't think those alien bodies are legitimate. Um, they just look way too much like ET, and more importantly, the the gentleman who was giving the rundown on them has a pretty checkered past in terms of making claims that have turned out to be demonstrably false, especially when it comes to alien bodies and UFOs. So I'm not sure why they gave him the platform. But the interesting thing is that not so much the content of what was said or the argument of, is this body real or is it not real? Um, obviously, that'd be an absolute bombshell if it was. Um, it probably wasn't. But if it was, then okay. I'm wrong. Uh, but what's interesting is that you have a major world government having a three hour live hearing on the topic of extraterrestrials and aliens on Earth and having that in, in all seriousness. So the question is, well, is this part of a larger coordinated effort to try and spin a narrative? Is it trying to normalize the conversation without really letting any any meaningful information slip? Is it some part of some bigger psyop? Uh, was the Mexican government put up to this? Um, and the answer to all those questions is, who knows? I don't know. I, I don't think it's quite what it appeared to be on the surface, but it's something that wouldn't have happened 10 years ago. Um, and Brian, let me know if you agree or disagree with that, but I, it, I just don't feel like 10 years ago there were countries having major hearings on these things and, and presuming to show alien bodies on live television. Now, what's interesting is there are there is some other footage that probably is much better out of Russia that shows um, what they claim to be alien bodies and the aftermath of a crash that it seemed to come from a better source and did look quite similar in a lot of ways. So but that doesn't mean that what we're seeing is um, is real. So all that to say, there's all kinds of crazy stuff going on out there, guys, and, and it's being reported it with a level of um, of seriousness and respect that just is new, and so you should expect the uh, a word that I've used a little bit more often recently that the zeitgeist is going to include more of this. That the, the the social norms are going to include more of this conversation. And to Brian's point, as we're going to get into the book here shortly, I think that's by design, and I'm not the only one who thinks it's by design. There's been forces behind the scenes that have been trying to bring our culture to this point for a long time because it's setting the stage for some much more important conversations. So, Brian, feel free to react. Yeah, I agree that 10 years ago, this wouldn't have happened. I mean, the biggest thing that happened over the course of many years in the United States was the Air Force's Project Blue Book, where they ostensibly went out and investigated 
UFO sightings and generated a large report. Um, but right now, they, the De- Defense Intelligence Agency released a report saying that uh, this was a ju- 25 June 2021 preliminary assessment, unaf- unidentified aerial phenomenon, and they have statistics and things in there. And you can, you can find this uh, on the web, but it basically says that about 65% of Americans think that there are, there is life, intelligent life in the galaxy on other planets right now. And that about 51% of people feel that sightings, abduction stories, and things like that are, are just further proof that this is happening. But, but most people do not see it as any kind of a national security threat to the United States, which seems very odd to me that you have a majority of people believing there's life on other planets. They believe that they're, you know, half of them believe that they are present on the earth with advanced technologies and then abductions and sightings are happening, but it's not a threat. And I think that actually ties in and is, is what you would expect the narrative to say. You would expect the narrative to say, we're not alone. There's no gods. Evolution is true. And, you know, these beings are, are around, but, you know, it's fine. They'll probably help us kind of a thing. So to me, these reports that are coming out of, you know, like I said, this is the Office of the Director of National Intelligence that put out this report in June of 2021. Okay, so... That's not this year. That's a couple of years ago. And a lot of these things get released and they get fly under the radar. But they are getting put out there. And that's that's giving more official credence to the idea that there is something to all of this. At the same time, they're saying, no, everybody who everybody's crazy. These are mass hallucinations. These things aren't happening. We don't have any spacecraft we don't have any alien bodies uh you can't believe the navy pilots over the the last hundred years who have seen all of these things um you know on and on and on so they're literally saying two polar opposite narratives at the same time yeah and 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 it's similar and not just on whether or not it exists but also on whether or not it's a threat you have some groups out there saying oh this is very much a threat and and some official defense groups absolutely saying this is a threat it gets them funding and attention and and puts them in a spotlight and then you have other groups releasing reports saying oh there might be something but it's clearly no big deal which um i think is a very hard argument to make when you look at some of the very best and most documented UFO cases involved have involved, you know, nuclear missiles and stuff like that. So you well, think that, that like, should be kind of a big deal. That book on Jack Parsons, the strange alien book. Yeah. I mean, he, de- they detail in that book that a group within the U S government at the time that was adamantly opposed to having any dealings with these aliens and that it was a huge threat and you should just stop you know yeah and and then a bunch of other people are saying no no no, this is great we can we can get new technologies we can increase our ability to basically wage war on other nations of the earth and we can use them for what they can give us 
and we'll be fine. So even obviously there's a lot of people who say that's all mythology, essentially it's all made up. But the people that are writing these books, the people that have testified in various times in Congress, all through the fifties, sixties, seventies, eighties, nineties, two thousand—I mean, all the way up—because there have been a lot of hearings over the years in Congress that were not reported on very widely or at all. But all the records are still available, and through the Freedom of Information Act, a lot of UFO researchers have been able to get this material and whatever subject matter that has been declassified from these meetings is available to them. And we're talking hundreds of thousands of pages of documents that people have spent their entire life going through these things and looking at them. So it's, there's a lot of information that has been put out by the United States government, by the Canadian government, by other governments that the normal person isn't going to hear about. They're not going to read about it. They're not going to know what's what or why is why. Um, so I would say that to make a conclusion that it's it's all bunk is probably pretty naive. But also to say that the narrative that it is, you know, evolution in the universe creating all these different races that all happen to be intelligent at the same time, and most of them are capable of interstellar travel, also seems a bit out there, if that makes any sense. Yeah. And for those who aren't familiar with Jack Parsons, the book Strange Angel is a, uh, a biography of Jack Parsons. Um, Jack Parsons is the founder of modern rocketry and jet propulsion in the U.S., and he was I don't know if you could really use the term necessarily Satanist, but definitely an occultist. Um, oh, he was a huge occultist, and he yeah. blew himself up, like uh, allegedly doing yeah. strange experiments. <laughs> well, yeah, his building, his his house, and his lab burned down yeah, he, under strange circumstances, he, for sure. He and several other key people kind of simultaneously blew up after uh, something called the Babylon working, which is an occult ritual that was supposed to open a portal. Uh, and that all happened immediately prior to the Roswell incident in 1947. Um, well, it also happened immediately prior to a lot of UFO sightings yeah. that were documented that like the, there were a lot of, there were definitely sightings documented before that and have been for a long time, but the frequency of it after that working, the Babylon working just dramatically increased. Absolutely. And the, the other reasons why it might be interesting for people to be familiar with Jack Parsons is he was a student of Aleister Crowley, whom we'll be talking about tonight, who was one of the most um, open, you know, Satanists in, in history. And he, and not just a student, but like a personal connection of Aleister Crowley, as well as being a close friend with uh, L. Ron Hubbard, who later went on to found Scientology, um, which includes a lot of aliens and extraterrestrial beings. So all these things kind of tend to collide and they come back to these high levels of government contracts and research and breakthroughs in technology that seem to also go hand in hand with uh, occult workings. And it's not just Oh, so-and-so dabbled in the occult and had a Ouija board of uh, Jack Parsons and his entire circle of friends were 
uh, avowed occultists and dedicated huge amounts of time and energy and resources and credited a lot of their knowledge and breakthroughs with uh, with these kinds of things. So certainly interesting. So speaking of um, of all of those uh, all those colliding topics, let's get into the uh, the conversation with Birthright just to get people a little bit back up to to speed. And let's talk a little bit about uh, the chapter nine section of Birthright because Dan and I were able to cover some of this without Brian. And this this chapter is called Atlantis Rising, and it's really about the uh, the concept of a pre-flood civilization and what was going on in this pre-flood civilization. And it talks about catastrophism and um, the, the thrust of the chapter, it's a long chapter nine is a long and complex chapter, but what it gets to is this idea that there's a return in the end times to something that was similar to the pre-flood times. And that is, a super or hybrid or golden race or some combination of those things that was uh, that was known and present and active before Noah, and that those concepts were immortalized in human mythology, and so some of the old ancient human myths are trying to preserve and what what they're calling gods were actually these uh, super beings that were around and active in these uh, more nephilimic times um, and 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 that they that there's a lot of truth to those ancient myths if you know how to look at them correctly and that those stories are actually preserving some reality that was there and then he gets into the conversations around these mystery schools that have long been focused on returning us to that kind of status and then the author tim alberino makes a case that that sort of approach lines up very well with what we see in the biblical prophecies about the end times with the beast rising out of the sea. He ties that into Poseidon and, um, and Atlantis. And he's not making the case that Atlantis itself is going to come back. What he's making the case for is that, that w- what was will be again, and that, that's actually using biblical terminology, what was and is not will be, and then will be, and then will not be. Contrast that with Yahweh, who was and is and is to come. Uh, Revelation talks about the beast that, that was and then was not, and then briefly will be again, and, uh, and he ties those things together. So while I've stumbled through some of that and tried to give some of the uh, broad strokes without taking away any thunder, Brian, if you want to give some thoughts or ideas on chapter nine and some of your commentary on this, because Dan and I were able to share some of this on previous episodes. Yeah. Uh, Part of the super interesting thing to me is the, the, the historical record that we have from the Greeks uh, and Egypt and other places related to this talk about the fact that, there were 10 Kings in Atlantis. So then I want to go all the way back to an early episode when we were talking about the Mesopotamian worldview with Dr. Heiser and all of that. And you have the Babylonian writings, which we have now, and they've been thoroughly translated and studied. And they give a lineage of Kings and there are 10 of them that are pre-flood Kings. 
So these numbers, they'll line up with each other as it being a pre-flood civilization. And you get from multiple sources the same number of these kings. And in the Babylonian tradition, you had angelic beings that were called Apkalu. And then after the flood, they were still called Apkalu, but they were half angelic. So they were hybrids at this point. And they were still continuing to do the same things, being the cultural heroes of the Babylonians and providing them with knowledge about pharmacology and astronomy and astrology and sorcery and warfare and metallurgy, all of those kind of things. And Alberino hits those things multiple times within this book in terms of continuing to go back and hammer that point that the Watchers and the fall of the Watchers and these beings were providing all of this information to mankind in order to gain their support, essentially, gain their worship and teach them for their own, their own purposes and their own ends. And the Atlantean stories that we have preserved as well, they, they line up in a lot of very specific details in terms of the makeup of the Atlantean Empire and the technology of the Atlantean Empire and the ability of them to subjugate anybody who came against them and that they were wiped out through a giant catas- cataclysmic flood or cataclysmic you know, geological event that destroyed their, their world. And uh, to me, just the fact that Alberino brings in these different points and then we can go back to other scholars and also tie in their reflections on things that they have studied and read. It's a very compelling story. It's a very compelling set of ideas that seems to have a great deal of support from history that we found, you know, and a lot of the quote unquote history that we found has been like the Dead Sea Scrolls and the, the Babylonian writings, the Akkadian writings, and all of these things that have came to light essentially in the 20th century. And then people were able to finally translate them. So before the 20th century, in the early to mid 20th century, none of this information was available. And the translations of this weren't even available until the 90s to be scholarly studied and have reasonable confidence that the translations were actually accurate. So uh, that to me is, is a very powerful statement about this chapter um, that he brings up relating to Atlantis, but he definitely goes into the strategy and the philosophical underpinnings of a golden age of hybrid humans that have been blessed by the gods that, were destroyed in the cataclysm, but that they will come back. And in the future, they will once again make themselves known to mankind and lift mankind out of its destitute nature and, and surroundings and break it free from, from, from anything else that is trying to control it and bring humanity into a new golden age. And this even smacks like... Arthurian legend, you know, you have King Arthur who goes away, but he's going to come back and he's going to be the true king. 
Um, you find this in a lot of different religious traditions that you would call pagan religious traditions. There is this constant cycle of dying and rebirth that happens, but it's very specific to a hybrid between gods and men creation. And these beings are the ones that are going to come and, and lead us out of our darkness and into the new light. And that's the promise of Atlantis. And it was, you know, it's the promise actually of the Luciferian church. And it's also the promise from a large segment of the UFO community that the, the aliens are going to come down and they're studying us and learning about us. And then they're going to come in and lead us into an age of galactic enlightenment and, and get rid of all of our sickness and problems with food and power and all those kind of things. So they all kind of line up, but they're all telling the same story about what's going to happen in the future. So what I want to do for a few minutes is help convince our audience that these ideas are not fringe ideas when it comes to the mystery schools and some of the elite realms of our society and some of the architects of our society. And, and by the way, guys, I, we're, we're not, I, I'm not, and I'm, I think I can speak for the others here. We're not of the position that there's some, some shadowy man, you know, behind all this. When, when we talk about when Brian and I were saying earlier, how you're getting mixed messages and things coming that, you know, the government saying things at total opposition. Well, the reason why is because this stuff is so compartmentalized that it's, it's total disorganization. Um, with a lot of these messages. The left hand doesn't speak to the right hand in many cases, and that's long been a criticism um, in the intelligence communities that the secrecy is so high that there is no real collaboration between any of these units. So that those people out there who know anything usually know a fraction of something, and then somebody else knows another fraction of it, but those two people never have any of it. They don't have that conversation because it's illegal. Um, and so they... So there's no real consistency in the messaging, and it's all over the place. We've talked about Bob Lazar and some of these other guys who actually worked in these projects, allegedly. And one of the things he said is he couldn't talk to anybody about what he was working on, and he feels like he could have made far more progress on trying to reverse engineer things if he could have talked to the other engineers who are working on other parts of the same stuff, but they, but they can't. So that's part of why you get this chaotic, incomprehensible message. However, that does not mean that there's not a thread of absolute consistency through this. So one of the things I want to do here is I'm going to flip through uh, chapter nine, maybe go into chapter 10, and I'm just going to read some of the excerpts that Alberino quotes from different writers. And some of these writers are going to be thousands of years old, and some of them are going to be dozens of years old. And they're all going to be either ancient uh, secular writers or they're going to be more modern and contemporary writers who were the fathers or you know the patriarchs or matriarchs of the mystery schools. And then we'll talk in the same mystery schools that Jack Parsons, L. Ron Hubbard, Aleister Crowley, and that's you know the same the same philosophers that kind of spawned this entire movement, which absolutely shaped our our pop culture today. You know the zeitgeist that is our our rock and roll and our Hollywood and everything else. So when Brian's saying that. There's an idea that these things are going to come back, that we're going to return to the golden age. This is not a fringe idea. This is an idea that's been around an extremely long time. 
and is really consistent. So what I want you to hear is how, just how overt some of this stuff is and how overtly satanic some of these things are. So let's start with, um, I want to read a, uh, uh, a little bit from um, Helena Blavatsky. So Helena Blavatsky, um, uh, where do we even start with Helena Blavatsky? Uh, she, she's kind of the, the, the matriarch of the movements that ultimately became um, more modern occultism, Satanism, uh, and as well as uh, the mystery schools. She, uh, the, some of the modern Masonic stuff came from her, the Thelemism, Crowleyism, all of these things uh, owe a lot to Helena Blavatsky. Well, and not even that. Over the years of Helen's writings and teachings, she started Christianizing her language. Yes. And she actually infiltrated different parts of the church. And she's actually credited with some of the modern charismatic in influence that some of the, the, the charismatic awakening that happened in the early 20th century had a lot of elements of her, her philosophy embedded in their interpretation of scripture. So it's not like this is just on the occult side. This is in mainstream evangelical slash charismatic denominations today. And that's something that, you know, you got to read your Bible and you got to understand what the Bible actually says and what it doesn't say. And you have to evaluate these ideas. And when preachers are getting up and telling you something and interpreting the Bible for you, you have to, you know, be Berean, right? Uh, if you've been in the church any amount of time, you know about the Bereans that would, every time they heard Paul speak, they would search the scriptures to see if what he said was true. Did it line up with what they, what they had? So that's, that's more insidious in, in Christianity, but it's also part of this, this same conversation. So just don't forget that. Well, it's absolutely true. And thank you for bringing that up because it actually helps understand the inversion of the language in some of these uh, quotes that I'm going to read because you, you'll get them referring to uh, the Christ. Well, they're not talking about Jesus Christ. They're talking about a completely different Christ, which is really the Antichrist. And there's no... They're not, they're not claiming to be talking about uh, Jesus Christ of Scripture. They're, what they're doing is they're co-opting language to make it sound like they're aligning with Christian values, but what they're describing is not of Christian values in any way. So the first quote I'm going to read is um, just a quote from Manly P. Hall. Manly P. Hall was one of the great Masonic writers, uh, shaped modern Masonic thought and uh, philosophy, so the Freemasons. Um, so he's a big deal in Freemasonry. And this quote is just him describing Atlantis, which was described by Plato back in the day. And you'll, what you'll notice is how he describes this as being this wonderful thing. It says, the Critias first described in the blessed state of the Atlantean people under the benevolent rulership of 10 kings were bound together in a league. These kings were monarchs over seven islands and three great continents. From the fable, we can infer that the 10 rulers of the Atlantic League were philosopher kings endowed with all virtues and wise guardians of the public good. These kings obeyed the laws of the divine father of their house, Poseidon, god of the seas. So keep that in mind, that idea of the philosopher king, because these mystery schools are really focused on 
bringing forth the new philosopher king and the new philosopher king is supposed to be this super being that that like the atlantis of old has um the wise the wise virtues of the public good in mind and can direct humanity to its next ascension um, when we talk about um Blavatsky, uh, there's a quote, I'm not going to go into the whole thing, but she highlights that the dragon and the sun are some of the most important symbols. Those are some of the most enduring symbols when it comes to uh, to what they worship and what it is that they want to return. And you find that symbolism heavily throughout um, her teachings and similar teachings. And then I want to... Um, let, me, let me jump in real quick. There, yeah, go for it. So there's, there's one line. So one of the things that um, Blavatsky started was the Theosophical Society. And that's going to come up a few times tonight. Um, weird side note, where I went to college is where I first heard about Theosophical Society because it was on land that they used to own. And there was a few buildings there that were just really weird. And there's all these weird haunted stories of some of these buildings like the administration building of the college is an old theosophical society building that has this weird purple dome on top and stuff. Anyway, they said uh, that the, the, the purpose of the theosophical society was to view Satan, the serpent in Genesis, as the real creator and benefactor and the father of spiritual mankind, which... You know, just that that blatant twisting, which if you remember back to the, the episode we did on the Eternals, the, the movie, it, it follows that almost exactly. You know, just the, the twisting of the, the creator God is really, really the bad guy. And it's it's this the person who's been portrayed as the bad guy all along is actually the good guy. And so it's just going right along with all that. Yes, exactly. And in fact, here, here's a quote from some of those writings where uh, Blavatsky and um, I think this is along with Colonel Henry Steele Olcott, who founded the, Theolo the, sorry, the Theosophical Society in New York, said, for it is he, and they're talking openly about Satan, who was the, quote, harbinger of light, bright, radiant Lucifer, who opened the eyes of the automaton, that's us, created by Jehovah, as alleged, and he, who was the first to whisper, in the day ye eat thereof, ye shall be as Elohim, knowing good and evil, can only be regarded in the light of a savior. An adversary to Jehovah, the personating spirit, he still remains in esoteric truth, the ever-loving messenger, the angel, the seraphim, and the cherubim, who both knew well and loved still more, and who conferred on us spiritual instead of physical immortality, the latter a kind of static immortality that would have transformed man into an undying, wandering Jew. Now, all those terms mean a lot. And by the way, when you read these old uh, theosophical writings, and there, there's a lot of gibberish, and it's, it's very, very thick writing in a lot of these cases. But what they're saying very openly right there is Satan's the good guy. He's the one who had the best interest in of humanity and mind. The creator was the bad guy. The creator created man as this pathetic creature, and Satan was the one who actually enlightened man and turned him into, you know, prevented him from becoming this 
this um, this pathetic creature. So they're saying you view Satan as the savior. So if you think that we're being paranoid when we say, hey, the roots of this stuff are satanic and uh, and of Luciferian origins, they absolutely are. And they're actually openly of Luciferian origins and openly of um, of, uh, of agendas where they want to return these things to this old age where they see satanic infused beings as being the light bringers and the saviors of humanity. Um, I'm going to read a quote. Uh, first of all, I'll pause there, said Brian or Dan, if you have anything to add, go ahead. I just wanted to say that the motto of the Church of Satan is, there is no God above the truth. And they're essentially saying that, you know, they know truth and that their their God is bringing truth in opposition to the Christian God and that there is no God above that. So you can throw off any worship of anyone else and essentially just worship the truth, whatever that means. But I just want to throw that out there. Whatever it is, it's not uh, the truth that Jesus means when he says, I am the truth. That's uh not at all what they're talking about. Here's an interesting quote from uh, Virgil. Um, Virgil was, he was a big deal uh, before Christ. I think that the generation or so before Christ, um, he was uh, in the Roman region. I know Paul, I've, I've been studying up on Paul because I've, I've been teaching some on the, the end of Acts and Paul and his road uh, on the Via Appia up to Rome after his trials in Jerusalem would have passed by a monument to Virgil. And um, Virgil is quoting a, um, a, a, a Sibylline oracle. And what you're going to hear is this hope that this new hybrid child will be born that will be the Savior. So this is going back before Christ, going back that the hope for the Savior. But when you hear it described, this is not the Savior being the Messiah that takes away the sins of the world. No, th this is a Savior of this hybrid demigod from these old gods that will come back. And a lot of um, modern occult occultic thought and mystery school thought leans on these kinds of ideas. So this is a Virgil. Now the last age by Cumaeus Civil son has come and gone, and the majestic role of circling centuries begins anew. Justice returns returns old Saturn's reign with a new breed of men sent down from heaven. Only do thou at the boy's birth in whom the iron shall cease, the golden race arise. Befriend him, chaste Lucina, tis thine own Apollo reigns. He shall receive the life of gods and see heroes with gods commingling and himself be seen of them and with his father's worth reign o'er a world at peace. Assume thy greatness, for the time draws nigh, dear child of the gods, great progeny of Jove, that's Jupiter, and how it totters the world's orbit might, earth and wide ocean, and the vault profound, all sea enraptured of the coming time. So when we read um, these things, uh, and, and you read uh, Herodotus, similarly, Herodotus said, uh, here's a quote from uh, Herodotus Inquiries, book two, the rulers in Egypt were gods settled with human beings. 
And one of them on each and every occasion was the Lord and Horus, that's Horus, the son of Osiris, was the last to be king there, whom the Greeks named Apollo. What we're talking about is this idea, going back to these very ancient philosophers, that the future of humanity, the ascension of humanity, lies within the return of these old hybrid god beings who came down from above and had hybrid offspring and that uh that you know what we think are evil gods from a christian perspective they're saying are the good gods and they're saying it very openly and the modern mystery schools do not refute that um here's a quote from one one other thing to throw in there joel yep that um the poem by Virgil that you just read that excerpt from, he, he also points out in the book that that is where uh, that poem is where the, the phrase new world order comes from. Yes. Yes. Thank you. Very good point. That's right. So yeah, he, he talks about the new which world is, order. Okay. Right? Novus ordu seclorum, which is on your money. Yes, it is. Well, and, and that well, is, that is the phrase that Virgil used novus ordu seclorum which is Latin. So so when you look at your money, and, and I, I do want to get to this after I read some of these quotes and just talk about how openly satanic this stuff is, we need to start asking the questions, why are these things on your money? Why are, why are certain architectural designs incorporated into things that you've seen since you were a child um, when it's openly satanic stuff? So here's another quote, and this is by um, Albert Pike, Morals and Dogma, uh, which is the ancient and accepted Scottish rite of Freemasonry. He's a guy who, you know, basically the father of the 33rd Freemasonry concept. People say, oh, well, and by the way, I don't hate all Masons or anything. There are many Masons who are trying to do good community service, but they don't read this stuff. They don't know that Albert Pike said stuff like the following. Lucifer, the light bearer, strange and mysterious name to give the spirit of darkness, Lucifer, the son of the morning, is it he who bears the light and with its splendors, intolerable, blind, feeble, sensual, or selfish souls? Doubt it not. Well, like I said, this stuff is thick. But what he's saying is, believe it, that Lucifer is the one who bears the light. And he is the one who brings the answers to the people who need them. And there are many quotes, if you read Morals and Dogma carefully, it's actually very hard to get a copy of it. I, I know of one and I've held it in my hands, but it's, I wouldn't say very, very hard, but it's not a book that you can just find laying around very easily. But if you can get a copy of it and you actually go through it, you're going to find a lot of this stuff where it says, really, Lucifer's the one we're after. And then it kind of tries to couch it back into language that makes it sound Christian and I, I've been uh, very recently, even in the last few months, recruited by Freemasons and asked if I'm interested in joining Masonic Lodges. And I don't think they listen to this podcast or they probably wouldn't ask me. <laughs> but, but the uh, but and a lot of these people, when I when they when I say, no, I'm, I'm not really into that. You know, there's some really dark ideas there. They're completely ignorant. of it. They're nice people who are saying, oh, well, I think you'd really like it. I'm like, no, I, I don't think that you want me there. And by the way, do you know what some of this stuff entails? And then they act like, oh, well, that's. That's, you know, that we don't really believe that. Like, well, maybe you don't, but those who design the Masonic orders do. And if you're going to ascend in Freemasonry, then uh, you better believe they haven't uh, they haven't let go of all those ideas. Well, uh, 
I'm going to go on a little mini rant there. <clears throat> so within Freemasonry, part of the initial thing that you agree to in joining the Freemasons is their their rule of secrecy. So whenever you're initiated into a new level, you're not allowed you were never not allowed to know anything about that new level until you actually were initiated. So you're not allowed to tell anyone in levels below you anything new that you learn ever. So it makes perfect sense that someone who's, you know, a 10th or a 15th level Freemason wouldn't know anything about what's going on in the 31st through 33rd levels because they're literally, no one is, is allowed. And in the original book on Freemasonry, the punishment was that the lodge master was able to eviscerate you with a dagger if you broke their secrecy rules. That's actually in the book. You know, it's like crazy, it's right? Just, it's, it's not just in the book. It's in the vows that you agree to. It's in the vows they take. They vowed that, that, that they would accept that punishment if, in fact, they were guilty of it. And this exact same argument from people and I, okay, let's, we can, we can talk about major religions on the planet. You can talk about Catholicism. You can talk about Mormonism. You can talk about whatever you want. And what you're going to find is, is that there are many beliefs within the system that we find kind of anathema today in general as a society. And the members don't really know about it. And when you confront them, they're like, well, we don't really believe that. And it's basically being ignorant of what they signed up to be part of. And I have very little tolerance for that idea. You know, if someone points out to me something that's going on, for example, in my church, my response should be, okay, let me look into this. And if in fact this is happening, whatever this bad thing is, that I'm going to be the first one to stand up and try to stamp it out and say, no, this is not a thing. And if I'm unable to do that, then I need to, to part ways and go in a different direction rather than pretend that this stuff isn't happening or that ignorance is actually an excuse because everyone knows the phrase ignorance is no excuse. So there's, there's a little mini rant for you. And there's a lot of organizations on this planet that engage in this same thing with the rank and file members that just don't want to learn what they actually signed up for. Well, a, a very good example of that. We're talking about theosophy, which paved the way for a lot of horrible concepts, uh, including uh, eugenics. And uh, Margaret Sanger, the founder of Planned Parenthood, was a theosophist. But when you talk to people today who work for Planned Parenthood, and I've had this conversation, I've said, you know, I, I really have a hard time with that organization, regardless of where you stand politically on the on uh, the idea of, of you know, pro-life, pro-choice. By the way, there's very plainly, I, I think uh, abortion is an absolutely horrible thing, and um, I don't support it in any way. Um, and I do believe it's, it's the taking of an innocent life. But having a conversation with somebody who, is not ready to go there with the, with that conversation yet. Just talking about the organization of Planned Parenthood, I said, you know, the origins of this organization are pretty dark. Some of the beliefs of Margaret Singer have never been denounced. And she was openly racist and openly um, 
uh, talked about lesser human beings and wanting to eradicate them through the abortion process. And she was a, a theosophist and an occultist. And you see these people, they just kind of blink at you exactly as Brian's describing. Like, well, we don't really believe that. Like, well, you're taking a paycheck from an organization that does. So <laughs> it's, it's there. If and at some point you got to have some responsibility for what it is that you're supporting. Um, so continuing on with some of these beliefs, I want to quote uh, Alice Bailey, who was a disciple of uh, Helena Blavatsky. And Alice Bailey wrote in a book called The Reappearance of Christ, and this is where they really shifted this language to talk about. Christ and really what they're describing as the Antichrist and naming it as Christ. Um, and this was in uh, 1948, and it was published by Lucius Publishing, formerly known as Lucifer Publishing. Um, here's a, a couple of quotes that just go on to support exactly what we've been saying. This will indicate a return to the situation which existed in the Atlantean days when, to use biblical symbology, God himself walked among men. Remember, that's not what Virgil said. Virgil said that the gods walked among men and commingled with men. And the members of the spiritual hierarchy were openly guiding and directing the affairs of humanity as man's innate freedom permitted. Now, in the immediate future, this will happen again. The masters will walk openly among men. The Christ, who is Apollo, and by her reasoning, will reappear in physical appearance, and the ancient mysteries will be restored. The ancient landmarks will again be recognized, those landmarks which Masonry has so earnestly preserved and which have hitherto securely embalmed in the Masonic rituals, waiting the days of restoration and resurrection. Here's a, a continuing on through there. Um, she just goes on to describe the procedure in which men will beseech the gods to return. Now, this is where this gets really important, guys, because we are, and think about all the, the, how we started this conversation, which is saying the, the pop culture mindset is being shifted to the idea that aliens and extraterrestrials exist and may be a threat, but may also be the greatest thing to happen. And the whole shift here, and when we say this idea that this should be embraced, what I'm trying to show you is going all the way back to 1948, then this has been, in fact, the next quote I'm reading is actually from 1944. This has been openly the plan. To, so listen carefully. This new invocative work will be the keynote of the coming world religion and will fall into two parts. There will be the invocative work of the masses of the people everywhere, trained by the spiritually minded people of the world, working in the churches whenever possible under an enlightened clergy. To accept the fact of the approaching spiritual energies focused through Christ in his spiritual hierarchy, and again, she's not talking about the Jesus Christ of the Bible, and trained also to, to, to voice their demand for light, liberation, and understanding. There will also be the skilled work of invocation as practiced by those who have trained their minds through right meditation, who know the potency of formulas mantras and invocations and who work consciously. They will increasingly use certain great formulas of words, which will later be given to the race, just as the Lord's Prayer was given by Christ, and the new invocation has been given out for use at this time by the capital H hierarchy. All right, 
So what we're describing there is not a, uh, or what, what Alice Bailey's describing there is not a, a revival of Christianity in the land. What she's describing is a new world religion under a new world order, which will be couched very much in Christian terms and Christianese, but is anything but Christ. And when I say anything but Christ, it's actually anti-Christ in its roots and, and how it's practiced. Notice how there's a, a heavy reliance on enlightened masters and these spiritual guides who use consciousness and, quote, the right kinds of meditation to enlighten the people who are crying out for light and knowledge. All this stuff is satanic and new ageist. And if you don't think new ageism has its roots in Satanism, then maybe that's another episode we should do on new ageism at some point. Um, it's, it's deeply, deeply satanic stuff. And what, one of the things I want to point to is you don't have to be a conspiracy theorist to see this. As Brian already pointed out, it's on our money. Um, so the all-seeing eye is also on our money. Uh, if you go, we don't have time to unpack it all now, but if you go back to the very oldest um, Isis and Horus and Osiris, the, you know, the, the very oldest Zeptepi kind of uh, mythologies, then you have the, the concept of the impregnating of Isis by Osiris, symbolized by a, uh, a dome and an obelisk. And what do we have standing in our capital city? Well, we have the, the, the dome of the capital and the obelisk of the Washington Monument. What do you have at the Vatican? Well, you have the, uh, the, uh, the, the obelisk from um, uh, Alexandria and one of Cleopatra's needles, the other one, which stands in Central Park, by the way, standing directly in front of the dome of St. Peter's Basilica. So the, the, these concepts haven't gone away, and they're openly acknowledged by those who, who've trumpeted them over the, over the decades as satanic in origin, but they're also openly embraced. You'll find uh, all through buildings in government buildings in Washington, D.C., you'll find um, these ancient goddesses and ancient gods and these ideas literally carved into the walls um, you know, that some would say that even Lady Justice, you know, is, is one of these with the, that heavy symbolism. Once you know what to look for, it's all there. Brian, I know you've got Lady some stuff Justice to say is, Lady Justice is Sibylline. Yes. And the all-seeing eye on the money also is radiating from the top of a pyramid. A pyramid. The capstone of a pyramid, by the, the way. The capstone of a pyramid. It, it is the capstone of the pyramid. So Which, what does the pyramid represent? Does it represent capitalism and freedom? No, it represents ancient Egypt. So you can go down that rabbit hole. Yeah. But like you said, we're not going to unpack that here. <laughs> it, for those of you who want to go down the rabbit by the way, have we ever explained on the, on the proverbial air here why Mystery Babylon is called Mystery Babylon or some of my thought process behind what, when, you know, no, Brian, when you suggested no, we, it? We haven't, we haven't done it. Okay. So some of you have, uh, have wondered about this, and uh, we'll go ahead and uh, and explain some of it here. And it, you may find it surprising. It's a little bit esoteric, but uh, Mystery Babylon is a play on words with the phrase Mystery Babylon. In scripture, you have three Babylons. You have Babylon, Daughter of Babylon, and Mystery Babylon. Uh, that's probably its own separate episode or series of episodes. We'll, I'll stop there on that. There was a man 
Uh, so Brian Brown, by the way, gets full credit for throwing out the pun of Mystery Bible on, which I immediately jumped on. But the conversation we didn't have and what I was thinking about when he came up was there was a man named Bill Cooper or William Cooper. He was a radio broadcaster and a Christian, and um, he gave a series of broadcasts on his show called Mystery Babylon. And what it was called, uh, you can find it if you search up the hour of the time, you can find this whole series out there on YouTube. And it is hours and hours and hours of him walking through the ancient mythology and breaking it down piece by piece on how these things fit together, how it plays into modern society. And, um, and he goes into tremendous detail. I mean, it's a masterclass in the occult schools, the mystery schools, how they fit together, how they influence modern society. And I think he was doing that back in the 90s. And by the way, he's been dead on on a lot of this stuff. He also published a little book that is very well worth reading called Behold a Pale Horse. And it's about the uh, he was one of the original guys pointing out the existence of deep underground military bases, deep state government, all kinds of stuff. And he was uh, shot to death by IRS agents outside of his home over a tax dispute. So he didn't live very long uh, after he came up with all these things. And there's all kinds of theories about what that shootout really was, because, you know, normally tax disputes don't turn into uh, prolonged gun battles where uh, well-known conspiracy theorists die at the end of them. So I mean, even Al Capone was just arrested and put in prison for tax. <laughs> yeah, Bill Cooper of Mystery Babylon. Uh, was gunned down by federal agents. He was um, definitely not a mob boss. So there you he, go. He was not. And he was, a, and you know, so it was a little bit of a head nod. And I've listened to, to um, the hour of the time many years ago. Um, it's, and, and he's literally trying to sound the alarm. The, the opening mantra to that old show, the hour of the time is like a, you know, a, 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 an alarm, like a, a blaring, awful, cacophonous alarm where he's like, hey, wake up and listen to this stuff. This is what's operating in your world. And so these things that we're talking about tonight, um, there is something owed to Bill Cooper, who was one of the early ones to put all these things together. But, you know, who was putting it together before him was uh, Helena Blavatsky, uh, Manly P. Hall, Albert Pike, you know, and, and then uh, Jack Parsons, um, Crowley, Nietzsche, and these people, they were putting it together, and they've been putting it together since the time of the ancient Egyptians has been being put together by folks, and there's a reason why we see so much influence. And it's not a tinfoil hat stuff. I mean, the, the people who designed our dollar bills and the people and the architects who designed the, uh, the layout of buildings like Washington, D.C., well, they, they were Freemasons, and they were openly Freemasons, and a lot of the thought process trumps, you know, I, I'm not trying to shake people up on your, you know, your beloved beliefs about founding fathers, but there was a lot of occultish thought in the founding fathers. And we're told, oh, well, they were men of great faith. Well, some of them, yeah, but some of them were men of deeply held occultic beliefs and were uh, high ranking in some of these um, mystery school organizations. Um, I've went through, you know, Denver airport today. And if you don't think this stuff is still alive and well, you just got to look around. It's, it's still very much there. Just I'll go back a, and watch the movie National Treasure, and it'll explain everything. There you go, <laughs> National Treasure. The moral of that movie is Nick Cage is the National Treasure. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> he needs to be protected. <laughs> um, Dan, anything to, to add here? I do want to move into some of the uh, stuff on 
uh, Nietzsche and Crowley and kind of point out how that shaped pop culture. But um, I, I've ranted here and gone into a lot. So uh, Dan, Brian, I know you guys are pretty well educated in this stuff. I, I know we're only scratching the surface. Yeah. So the the point Albrino is making with this chapter is he's he's taking us to a point where he's going to then spend the next three chapters going into uh, these three circles that will overlap. The new religion, the alien threat, and then the post-human paradigm, and how all those will kind of overlap into this new golden age, where Apollo, the, you know, the the false Christ, will be revealed, and there will be Armageddon, and that essentially this uh, we're going from a, a period of atheism where uh, where people don't believe in God to um, what he calls apothotheism, which is what he defines as, uh, you know, open opposition to God. And so, you know, as we get into this, this next chapter, uh, we'll see a little more of the kind of the background of kind of where that comes from. But, you know, it's, it's basically, you know, not just being dismissive, but being uh, openly anti-God and anti-Christ. Well, what's amazing to me about that is you take atheism, which is there is no God, there is no supernatural world at all. It is only the physical realm, what we call the material world. That is all that exists. And when you die, you're gone. You become worm food for other beings that are living. To, so no God whatsoever to, oh no, there's a God and we hate him. And we're going to, we're going to worship some other God because we don't like that one. It's just startling in the reversal of understandings and ideas, but we're already seeing a trend. If you follow in the philosophical, you know, YouTube bloggers and different things like that, you, you, you're starting to see a falling of atheism. And there was even a, a group called the new atheists for a while. And, and they're, everybody's starting to kind of peel away and there's a little bit of a vacuum in there right now. That's it's getting bigger. And to me, that makes sense of, of what's going to come on next. So, so yeah, very good points. And thank you, Dan, for summarizing that and making things uh, returning us to coherency. Um, apotheotheism is open rebellion against God. And, and that is, by the way, that that's uh, Timothy Alberino term, apotheotheism. It's his invented term to describe what he just, what he uh, is calling the, what will be the, the new religion, uh, which is probably something like what Alice Bailey was describing, where you'll have these enlightened people showing the way. But I thought apotheotheism is not just being against God, it is the belief that man can become a God himself. So he says, and I think it's on, it's on uh, page, 209, yeah, page 209, rather than doubt the existence of Yahweh, apotheotheists demote him to a petty tyrant, an imposter who has many equals in the universe and whose attributes are attainable by means of technology. Whereas atheism is an expression of denial Apotheotheism is a posture of defiance. Atheism is derived from the doctrine of Darwin, 
who concludes that man is the product of evolution and has no purpose. Apotheotheism is derived from the doctrine of Nietzsche, who contends that overman is the purpose of evolution. The atheist argues that gods do not exist. Apotheotheists acknowledge that the gods do exist and intends to become like them. The atheist declared that man created Yahweh. The apotheotheist is determined to depose Yahweh. Um, that and he lines that up. That should be sounding a lot like Psalm two in your mind, which is why do the nations rage? And they say, well, we want to shake off this God who's been oppressing us for so long. Think back to some of um, uh, Albert Pike and um, some of the the readings we we just read, or or and Blavatsky who said. Uh, Satan's the original light bringer and the one who really freed and saved man out from under the oppression of his creator. That's apotheotheism. She's not saying that there is no creator. She's saying there is a creator, but the creator is the bad guy. The rebel is the good guy. And by the way, with tying that in with Alice Bailey and some of what she's saying, you bring that to its full conclusion. It's, and by the way, we can become just like him. So uh, you will not surely die, but you can become like gods knowing good and evil. Well, previously, yeah. uh, previously in the chapter, there is a quote from uh, Iwas. He's talking about um, Nietzsche and his writings with the character Zarathustra and the things that he was talking about. And, and one of the quotes is, I am in a secret fourfold world, the blasphemy against all gods of men. Curse them. So it's not they're equal opportunity haters, essentially. Curse them, curse them with my hawk's head, okay? Because Horus is the Crowley was supposedly going to be the avatar of Horus, and he was going to enlighten people. And his wife at the time, Rose, was going to be the Scarlet Woman, who was going to be his consort. Um, with my hawk's head, I peck at the eyes of Jesus as he hangs upon the cross. I flap my wings in the face of Mohammed and blind him. With my claws, I tear out the flesh of the Indian and the Buddhist, Mongol and Din. And then there's a couple of words, Balasti and Ompeda, which, you know, I don't know who they are, but I spit on your crapulous deeds. Let Mary in violet be torn upon wheels for her sake. Let all chaste women be utterly despised among you. So for one thing, they put all beliefs in gods all on the same level. So it doesn't matter if you're Jewish, Christian, you know, Islam or uh, Hindu, Buddhist, they're all the same and they hate them all. And, you know, they, you should just do what you want to do. You will, you're in charge and you should throw off all of their morality and all of their teachings and do what you want. And Crowley, a few pages later in the book, says, because he's talking about Nietzschean philosophy, which these guys have just been talking about Nietzsche's idea of man. Man basically is supposed to take over the process of evolution. And the goal of evolution is this Superman, uh, der, der Übermensch in German. Um, but Crowley, he praised Nietzsche as an avatar of Thoth, the god of wisdom, and encouraged his disciples to read Nietzsche, which cracks me up because Nietzsche would have absolutely, with his entire being, hated someone saying he was an avatar of an Egyptian god. 
so these guys just kind of put together their philosophies in kind of a salad and pull in whatever they want as long as it supports their preconceived notion of morality is bad, do what you want. And then you have Hitler creating the Nazi doctrine and he used Nietzsche and he used Darwin to justify what he was doing. And then Stalin did the same thing without publishing it as widely as, as Hitler did. But all right, Dan, I jumped on yeah. you. So oh, you're good. Yeah, and he well, on that thought, he talks about how, you know, after this, these, um, these thoughts of Darwinism and all this came about, more men died in war and death by government in the century following Darwin than all of human history combined. And uh, th this chapter is kind of a disturbing chapter because it's talking a lot about Nietzsche and Crowley and and just the utter depravity. And, you know, give, goes into a lot of examples of their depravity. And it's, I mean, it's really kind of disturbing. Um, but it's really just this, this celebration of de depravity, which you're seeing more and more even in our, in the culture around us. Yeah. And under socialist and communist regimes in the 20th century, over a hundred million people died. People need to get that through their head. Well over. They need I mean, to understand that socialism is not just a nicer, different, you know, more friendly form of government than capitalism and capitalism is the root of all evil. A hundred million people. That is staggering. And I don't understand why people just aren't trumpeting that. It's like, you guys tried this. It doesn't work. Lots of people die. It's bad. Let's not do that again. And not to say that, you know, our current capitalist government is the epitome of all governments and there's nothing ever that can be better. It's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is, is that those for sure, direct Darwinistic, social Darwinistic philosophy applied to human lives has spread more death than, like Dan just said, the entire history before that of the earth that we know of. Yeah. And so another interesting note with, with these two guys is they were both uh, sons of pastors and obviously took a pretty dramatic turn away from that. Um, just one quote from each of them real quick is uh, from Nietzsche says, Overman, you know, he, is lawless. He's not accountable to God because he's become his equal. Um, and then with Crowley, Crowley wrote that he simply went over to Satan's side. And to this hour, I cannot, cannot tell why, but I found myself as passionately eager to serve my new master as I had been to serve the old. I was anxious to distinguish myself by committing sin. I wanted a supreme spiritual sin, and I had not the smallest idea how to set about it. And, you know, it goes from there into some of the things he did. And there's a really crazy story uh, about him in the Egyptian museum coming across, you know, the uh, finding, finding um, a, st a statue of Horus, which... Uh, this was in the Egyptian museum and I was there a few years back and it, that place is just kind of like a crowded warehouse of all sorts of stuff. I mean, it's just so 
it's so packed in there. It's, it doesn't feel like a super organized museum. And so, you know, they went around and the, his, his wife at the time had seen a vision of somebody and was just going around until she saw the same image and saw him and stopped and the exhibit number was 666 and so i mean it was just there's there's just some crazy stuff in this chapter yeah that that was uh his wife after she had this vision and then she told him all of these things that these beings told her and he didn't really believe her because in his words she wasn't trained in the occult and she didn't have any of this knowledge she didn't know ancient egyptology so he took her to the museum specifically to see if he could somehow prove what she was saying was true. And so he said, you need to go around here and you need to find the picture of this guy that, you know, whatever. And it was Horus and she did it. And so he was like, okay, I believe you now, you know, kind of a thing. I think they got divorced what, like four years after that, after she was proclaimed the queen of the Scarlet woman and, and his queen and whatever. And then he divorced her, but well, that, that whole uh, ritual that you're talking about where she started to have those visions, it started in the upper portion of one of the Egyptian pyramids is literally yes. where they begin the ritual. So that's correct. So let, let's get back to Crowley for a minute because I, I want to, um, or we're talking about Crowley, but I want to get back to an element of Crowley that I think people, are, people might be saying, why are we talking about this one guy? Well, this one guy shapes a lot more than you realize. So Crowley's belief system is so we, uh, he was a big follower of Blavatsky. Remember, Jack Parsons followed Crowley, um, uh, Al Ron Hubbard. Many, uh, he had many devotees um, who were considered of high and powerful society. But his belief system was called Thelema. And it was in his autobiography that Crowley himself said that his purpose was to bring oriental wisdom to Europe and restore paganism in its purer form. And what people don't realize is how many leading thinkers of the, let's say 60s, 70s, 80s, gave a lot of credit to Crowley. And I'll, I'm gonna upset some people by naming a few of them. Um, because the, the, the law of, of Thelemism, as Brian mentioned, was do what thou wilt. It's, it's there is no law except to do what you want. And there were many, um, many who credited Crowley with shaping their mindset, including David Bowie, Led Zeppelin, uh, Red Hot Chili Peppers, but uh, the Beatles were particular fans of Crowley. They put him on the cover of the Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club, um, along with many other celebrities of the time. But there's a very good case to be made that Sgt. Pepper is Aleister Crowley. And the opening line of that album is when they say, it was 20 years ago today, Sgt. Pepper taught the band to play. Sgt. Pepper is Aleister Crowley, I, I believe. And the Beatles never really denied that. Um, remember, Crowley's famous law is do what thou wilt is the whole of the law. And in an interview, then Lennon of the Beatles said, the whole Beatle idea was to do what you want, right? Take your own responsibility and do what you want. Try not to harm other people, right? Do what thou wilt. Do what thou wilt, just as long as it doesn't hurt somebody. So that's Lennon. And he's saying the entire Beatle idea is congruent with the law of Aleister Crowley's uh, uh, Thelemism, which is do what thou wilt. And they actually credited Sgt. Pepper with being the one who taught their band to play, not because Crowley was a musician, but because 
that concept, which is, I remember Rick Crowley was, he was also nicknamed the wickedest man alive. I mean, he was just into the, the most terrible occultic stuff you can imagine. You know, the, the, uh, we don't need to list it all here, but every bit of, uh, you know, sexual magic and perversion you can think of was, um, absolutely forefront. And by the way, Jack Parsons, the other, and these other guys were too openly to the point where the Italian government chased Crowley out of Italy at one point, because they were like, oh, you're ruining Italy with the stuff that you're doing here. And um, there's a house there that still stands where he was, you know, they were trying to keep it secret, but they were conducting so many of these things. And it kind of goes to, to Dan saying that a lot of, uh, you know, uh, that some of this stuff holds over and still affects it. But uh, Alberino lists some of the bands. This is not all of them who have openly credited or honored Aleister Crowley with their music and their ideas. And those bands include, as I mentioned, the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, Led Zeppelin, The Doors, David Bowie, Pink Floyd, Black Sabbath, Metallica, Guns N' Roses, ACDZ, Aerosmith, and U2, among many others. So when we talk about the, this weird esoteric stuff and people are like, who cares that some guy and his weird girlfriend went to some warehouse museum in Egypt, and who cares that they thought they were enlightened? Well, the, their ideas, which were not in a vacuum, were the major ideas shaping an entire generation. I mean, who, who among us, and, and including you listeners, have, and those three of us talking today, were not heavily shaped by the, by the music of the bands that I just mentioned, not to mention many Hollywood ideas and many others. And it's not just Crowley. Crowley's just one of the better known of some of these. So the, I think the point of um, what we're talking about tonight, uh, among other things, but part of the point of what Alberino saying and some of what we're trying to bring to, to your mind here is the, is, is showing that this stuff isn't new. It's been around a long time. There's a purpose to it. And our society is being shaped and evolved into this place where the final workings of these ideas are possible. And the final workings of these ideas are not atheism. They are the idea that man can defeat God and raise himself with the help of some enlightened beings to being something more than man as man, to being the, the evolution of man. And that's where you get the new religion, the combination of two alien ideas, the golden race and the alien threat, and, and we're going to uh, explain those more, but it's partly that aliens are the best thing ever, and partly that aliens are the biggest threat to humanity. And when you put those things together, then you can get to a really um, helpful paradigm for all of these um, for all, all of these ideas that we're describing tonight. And then you get uh, man evolving beyond man, you know, the the, the order of, of man going past uh, past what he was. By the way, I'm going to quote Crowley real quick and from his book, uh, Magic Without Tears. He says, my observation of the universe convinces me that there are beings of intelligence and power of a far higher quality than anything we can conceive of as human, that they are not necessarily based on the cerebral and nervous structures that we know, and that the one and only chance for mankind to advance as a whole is for individuals to make contact with such capital B beings. So he's saying the whole hope of humanity is that we're going to connect with these things that are more than we are and become something more 
than man. So when you get the, the post-human apocalypse combined with the alien threat, combined with the new world religion, then th those are the things that, uh, that Alberino says kind of overlap into the new golden age in which Apollo, who is the Antichrist, that's the term uh, Alberino uses for the Antichrist is Apollo, where Apollo is revealed. So, so the, his point in these chapters is those are the three things, the new religion, the alien threat, and the post-human paradigm. When they all overlap and come into the right synchronicity, then we enter the new golden age, which is what the mystery schools have been talking about for a long time, and Apollo, who is the Antichrist, will be revealed. And why is it important that the Antichrist will be revealed? Well, if we go back to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, then Paul says, now, this isn't Crowley or anybody, this is your Bible. Now, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. So Paul, your Bible in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 says, the day of the Lord will not come until the, unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness, who is the Antichrist, is revealed. And that's the son of destruction. By the way, the Greek word for destruction is Apollomy, which is where we get Apollo. It's part of why Alberino uses that term. So Alberino says that when you put these three, three things together, the new world religion, the alien threat, and the post-human paradigm, or sometimes called the post-human apocalypse, then, you, then the conditions are ripe. And the point he's trying to make is, our society, especially since uh, Darwinism um, is, is being shaped into these thought processes and ideas that make those things not only um, possible, but, but likely, and that we're shifting into a mindset where a, uh, you know, a, 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 a super race is going to be embraced and it's going to be the evolution, both the hatred of mankind and the evolution of mankind. And that's something I want to point out really quick. What I've found, and Brian and Dan, feel free to comment on this. I've read a lot of the garbage out there in terms of these channeled spirits, these, um, uh, you know, the, these ideas of, of these, these spirit beings who are the enlightened ones, but who from a Christian perspective hate Christ but they pretend to be very, very wise and they come through these channeling masters like Crowley and Blavatsky and some of these others. When you read their stuff, you're gonna find one thing that's very consistent. They hate mankind. There's an absolute fundamental loathing hatred of mankind, but they kind of really need mankind at the same time. So if you go back to uh, the the, uh, exorcism episode that we did, and I think I did that one on my own. One of the things I talk about is Jesus Christ is the representative human being of mankind. He calls himself the son of man for a reason. Well, Satan and his, uh, those who align with Satan hate mankind. One thing that is 
and whereas Jesus Christ died to save mankind. So Jesus loves mankind, became man in order to offer salvation to man, whereas Satan hates mankind. If you're wondering if something is not of Christ, then there's two things you can test. One is what does it say about Christ? Biblically, we're told that test the spirits. Do they acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and King? If they don't, well, they're not of Christ. Another really good clue, if you're watching a movie or listening to a podcast or reading a book, you should pick up on if there's a fundamental underlying hatred of human beings, of of mankind as a race and as, as an existence. I'm sorry to say that that mindset and that spirit has absolutely invaded the uh, the pop culture mindset, and some to some extent in millennials, but very much in uh, Gen Z. Then there's a fundamental underlying hatred of mankind. And if you peruse, you know, the the popular forums, and when I say forums, I mean you know Reddit and these places where people post and comment stuff. And if you're following comments on TikTok or any of those things, not that that's a great use of time, but if you see it you can find this mindset is very, very pervasive where people essentially say, look, if aliens showed up and and you can see this on the comments around the Mexican governments, people are saying, please let it be real and please let there be aliens and please put them in charge. There's a whole generation of people that are just openly asking for this. They're saying it as a joke, but they're, they're not joking. They're saying, yeah, we, we see mankind as a failed race. We see our current systems as failed systems and we're ready for somebody else to come in and show us the way. Well, remember all the quotes we read tonight. That is the purpose, the the stated purpose and the careful construction of the mystery schools for thousands of years and very aggressively in the last uh, handful of decades. Well, and if you, it makes sense, right? Like logically, if you look around the world today and you see corruption at various levels of government and corporations taking advantage of people and, you know, destroying the planet and on and on and on and on and on. There's a giant list of things that people do to other people that are all bad. And one of the things that he points out in these chapters, talking about specifically Charles Lyell and his uniformitarianism theory that Darwin used to kind of give him the foundation for Darwinian theory it got rid of the idea of a global flood. It got rid of the idea of, of a God being in charge who was actually intervening in the world. And if you take that away and then you just have a five minute attention span and look at the world around you, you are going to see a really bad place to be, you know, I, it's like people saying, oh, I went to college and I spent all this money and now I can't get a job. And on and on and on. Every system is just bad. Every system is is, is pushing down on me and, and making my life bad and, and on and on and on. All of those things make sense from that perspective if you don't believe that there was a creator that created man in a perfected state. Man chose to leave that perfected state and God is going to restore us back to that perfected state in the future. Yeah, but if you they, remove that initial perfected state, then it actually makes a lot of sense that you want somebody to come fix all this crap. Well, the irony is the the people who hate humanity and you know where we are are the same people who don't really acknowledge sin and and think of people as basically good 
and you know don't want to call out sin for what it is and and don't don't look at what is wrong with humanity which Jesus came to to save us from but they think you know that people are basically good and and the bad things they're doing really aren't so bad if you just understand the the person's psychology and their motivations and you know it it, it all gets twisted to where you can actually hate humanity but love the sin instead of you know Jesus who loved humanity and hated sin so much that he was willing to die to to wipe it away and bring us to a to perfect relationship with him and to, and to repair that well you're exactly right on that Dan and and thanks Brian for making those points there's such an inversion of Christ and the gospel, and it's every single element that we point out uh, just goes to show how Satan doesn't have new ideas. He takes the ideas of Christ and twists them and inverts them to where what what is the Savior, what is the way forward in the salvation of humanity according to mystery school occultic thought? Well, it's that these non-human beings need to have a partial human or a hybrid human offspring that will show humanity an enlightened way to ascent. Well, what is that? Well, that's a twisting of the gospel because what you have there is that God becomes human, dies to save humanity from salvation and is the way forward into the truth. And that humanity becomes the very righteousness of God by Christ. And we see that in second uh, Corinthians five twenty one. So you take all those ideas of what Christ is, who he is, and what he does, and you turn them inside out and upside down, and you get these occultic ideas. And there's a reason why you know, occultists actually literally use you know, an upside-down cross and, and other symbols to symbolize what they're doing. And there is a fundamental hatred of, of Christ and everything he stood for, while the, at the same time, there's a, a self-exaltation. You know, I, I've described the Gen Z and, and to some extent, the millennial mindset is narcissistic self-loathing in, in many times in the past, because there's a, a level of narcissism. And, uh, and, and when I say millennial, I'm, I'm not, I'm technically a millennial by my own birth. It's just, it's a mindset that I understand. Uh, there's a level of narcissism and self-loathing in it because we millennials have been told our entire life that, uh, Humans are, are the problem. You know, we, we talked, we've talked about this in other episodes, how you can't watch a nature documentary without getting a gentle scolding from David Attenborough at the end of every single one of them on, hey, look at this magnificent, beautiful creature. And there's no acknowledgement of the creator or any of that. It's all over billions of years of evolution and, the, and millions of years of this and that. But this thing has adapted to become this magnificent creature. But you're killing it because of who you are and what you do and you're ruining it. That's always there at the end of them. And, and that's been so fed into the modern mindset among many other things, you no know, climate change and problems and the failure of every single institution of every single state and every political realm to the point where uh, the, uh, the secular mindset, I think would absolutely embrace a, uh, a non-human savior and would be willing to jump through any hoops and say, no, we, we must get rid of Christ. We must get rid of, the, these old religions, we must throw all of that off. And by the way, if there was a such thing as Christ, then it must be this new shiny thing that I'm seeing now. Well, the story that has been told that has had the most effect on this 
is the underlying one that is it isn't our fault that we're in this situation. If there is a God that created everything, it's his fault. And it's not, our choices had nothing to do with it. We are all victims. And that's why in one of the really early quotes in this episode that you read, we were called the automaton and that Satan was saving everyone from being an automaton, meaning being absolutely controlled by this other divine being, Yahweh, is, is, is how they, they phrase it. And so if I am in this situation because of an outside agency and I can't control anything, then I want someone to fix that, right? I'm oppressed and I, I am in an oppressed group. And in this case, the oppressed group is every human being that's ever been on the planet. However, that isn't true. When you look at all of the, the bad things that happen in the world, they are caused by people's choices. And those choices are what happened in the garden. And we have, as a human race, every day we make decisions. But if you can get everyone or the majority of people to believe that it isn't their fault and they're victims. And then you start introducing this idea of divine beings or aliens that are much more powerful than we are that know better and are wiser. You know, it just makes sense. You want to jump on that train. The problem is, is that it isn't true and it doesn't line up with reality. Very good point. Brian, and again, thanks for bringing that up and, and just laying it out there that uh, there's a, a, a narrative and a false narrative, and many people are being fed this idea that God's the bad guy, but we know from Scripture that the, the real issue here is is sin and our own depravity, and God has offered us salvation from that, whereas these anti-God forces are saying that we should be self-actualizing and look and turning away from God and looking to ourselves for the answers. And that lie is literally the oldest lie in the book going all the way back to Eden. There's one more topic I want to cover and it's quick, but this is a rapid, you know, we've kind of hit chapters nine and 10 and we'll, we'll move in. I think the next chapter is uh, the alien threat. So you all can get excited about that one. It's, I think, when we come back to uh, Tim Alberino's work, we will um, get some more directly into the extraterrestrial topics, which are new and changing every day, and and uh, and you know and, and hitting the news all the time. So maybe by the time we record the next episode, there'll be some new crazy current event that we can talk about. But I want to just give a quick reminder to you, dear listeners, who are saying, "Okay, you guys, uh, last time you talked about the." the terrifying state of finance we've seen on our chat threads. You know, we've talked about um, uh, uh, asteroids and other possible disasters, which we see in the book of Revelation. That's in the, the Telegram group. We've had some of that come up. We've talked about um, implosions of governments. We've talked about the post-human apocalypse. We've talked about deleterious mutations in human evolution. We've talked about the new world order. We've talked about the consolidation of governments, the collapse of currencies, all kinds of stuff. It would be very normal for you as a listener to be going, this is terrifying. What do I do? I need to rethink everything. Uh, I need to get take all my money out of the stock market and buy 
uh, you know, guns and gold and dried food and go find the deepest, darkest bunker I can be in and go hide. I want to be clear that, that that's not what we're advocating. We talk about being wise, being shrewd, being prepared. And I, I know there's a lot of voices out there saying, you need to get militant about your thought process. You need to get militant about your religion. You need to, um, you know, start rejecting the world and protecting you and your loved ones. And you just need to start storing everything up that you can. And you need to be ready to, to live off grid and totally independent. And no, that's, that's really not the solution to these things. The solution, as I'm sure Dan is poised to say, is the solution to all of this is Christ. The solution to these things is not you being individually prepared for any given disaster. I had a conversation with somebody recently, uh, somebody who I care about and who's a, a very uh, a wise and thoughtful person who was saying, if any of these things are true, how do I protect my family? And, um, and so if there are some practical things, and we talked about it on the last episode, you can go listen to that one where, yeah, it's a good idea to, to make sure you've, thought of thought through some things like, Hey, what would I do if my bank doesn't work for a, a month or that's a real world situation that I've personally dealt with. Uh, it wasn't a month, but it was it, me and my business. You know, that's, that suddenly think that a bank didn't work, literally stopped existing within nine hours. And um, so those are real world things. Like you should think through that. What will I do? What's my backup plan? How can I pay bills? Another good thought is what if the electricity went off for a week? Would my family be okay? Uh, so I'm not saying don't be prepared. Don't think through, do be prepared. Do think through those things. Do take some basic steps, have some savings, have some extra food, have a plan for where you're going to get water. If you turn your faucet and it doesn't come out, there's a time and a place where that may come in handy. I, I remember the eve of Y2K when I was a much younger person. I remember the whole neighborhood started simultaneously conserving water and I went and turned on the faucet to, uh, for some reason to take a bath or whatever it was and nothing came out. And that was the first time in my life that I consciously remember going, Oh no, the system doesn't work. And it was because everybody was freaking out about Y2K. So it made sometimes nothing even needs to happen. Just everybody needs to think something might happen. But that being said, what we're not advocating is that you turn your life upside down and spend all your money trying to prep for everything because that's not what we're called to as Christians because our hope is not in our preparation, our foresight, our wisdom, our ability to predict, our ability to see things coming from a mile away. That's not what we're called to. It's not, we're not called to be confident in our ability to interpret difficult prophecy. We shouldn't be putting our hope in uh, and I, you know, if I hear one more person say, oh, well, it doesn't matter because the rapture is going to come and I'm going to be out of here, you know, gag me that I, no, that's I, it's, it's staying away from the whole rapture stuff. That also shouldn't be our mindset that it doesn't matter. It does matter. God's put you in this world for a reason. And that reason is to reflect Christ to the people who need him. And that's everybody that you meet everywhere. So our response to this stuff is how do we bring the hope and love of Christ to a world that, as we've talked about tonight, is indoctrinated with satanic ideas, is hopeless, has being told that Christ and their creator is the bad guy, is to the point of wanting to embrace 
destructive beings as an alternative to humanity and has a, a, a creeping underlying self-loathing that's been spoon-fed to them for their entire life. How do we bring Christ into that situation? That's what we need to be thinking about. So yeah, do your prep uh, if you want to. That's fine, but do it thoughtfully and prayerfully, but don't put your hope in that. The other message I want you to hear from us loud and clear is you don't need to be afraid of this stuff. Christ wins. Go read Psalm 2 if you're not sure. It's going gonna, it's gonna to summarize everything we've been talking about tonight, and Christ wins in the end. And it says he laughs at the threat. You know, It says all the nations team up to try to throw him off, and he laughs because he's the powerful one. If you're in Christ, you don't need to be afraid. The other thing I want you to hear is live your life that God has given you. It's biblical. Go read Ecclesiastes chapter, end of chapter five and into chapter six if you need to. This, the Bible says that it's good to recognize that you've been given a good life and to enjoy it. So if you're sitting at home with small children going, oh no, my kids aren't going to be able to go to college. They're not going to have a good life. My savings are worthless. What we need to do is convert everything into freeze-dried food and move off grid. No, you don't have to do that. What you should look around and say, wow, it turns out, just like the Bible has said all along, all of this is temporary. None of us lives forever. We don't take anything with us. So in the meantime, what should we do? We should recognize God's blessing and his gifts where they are. And we should thank him for them and live in gratitude and generosity. That's what we're called to as Christians, to live a life of gratitude to, to our creator, love for Christ, love for others, and generosity to people who need it. So if you're hearing all these things and it's turning you against your neighbor and turning you against people who are lost, then you're not hearing it from us because our, our overwhelming message is live with joy. Live and walk in the light of Christ. Your food should taste better, not worse, as a result of all this stuff. You should be more excited, not more scared as, as a result of thinking through these things. You should be walking around singing the praises of Christ and showing a, a jubilant love to others and an open uh, care for others based on what we're hearing and recognizing that there are people who don't have Christ who are lost and who are afraid and who need that hope. So that's my little sermonette on that. And uh, Dan or Brian, feel free to jump in. Yeah, I, I would just say also that, you know, it's the fear and, and, and thinking about these things is not a crazy response. I was reading Daniel last week and Daniel chapter seven, uh, a couple times he talks about this, but Daniel seven fifteen. this is right after Daniel saw one of his visions. And he says, as for me, Daniel, my spirit was distressed within me and the visions of my head kept alarming me. Okay, so if you're if you are feeling anxious about these things, you're not alone. I mean, Daniel, who I think we can all agree was a mighty pillar of the faith. You know, uh, uh, like somebody to um, attain um, to. I mean, wish we could have the faith as strong as Daniel, right? And and yet he. At least you, you. At least you got his name. Yeah, yeah, that's about all I got. But, you know, he was distressed and alarmed by these things. And so it's not crazy when we are, which, you know, somebody I was, um, I was talking to a couple weeks ago, 
And they're like, you know, I really appreciate it on the podcast when you bring it back to Christ. And I was like, I've got to do that because as I'm reading these things and preparing these things, I have to keep grounding myself in Christ because as, as you're reading some of these books and, and doing this research, you're like, man, what is going on? The world's crazy. There's horrible stuff out there. There's a, an awful lot that we're up against. And we really, like practically, very much really do need to come back to Christ with it and really lay it at his feet and acknowledge that that we know who wins. And, and we know that he made the way for us to be on his team and that's an amazing blessing and so and so the fact that we can um, pledge our allegiance to to the true king of kings and lord of lords and and the one who 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 is ultimately victorious and who this is all about and it is all for his glory and so we can align ourselves with him and and there's really nothing better that we could do to prepare. Which, you know, like Joel said, there's there's things we can do. Um, you know, making sure you have a few things here and there. But, you know, if things get really bad, there's no amount of prepping that's going to protect us from it. Uh, ultimately, our walk with Christ is going to be what matters the most. And uh, which, you know, hopefully doesn't sound discouraging. But... Um, we we do we do serve a God that we can trust, and um, one other thought on that, you know, if things get really really bad, you know, what what are we going to do? And uh, one of these days we should do an episode on uh, some books about you know, the persecuted church, and I've read some of those books not too long ago, and. You know, sometimes you read these stories of the persecuted church who are dealing with what what we often think of as a worst case scenario, right? Like the government coming in and arresting them and torturing them because of their faith. And they've lived what we think of as you know a nightmare situation. And I tell you, some of the, the testimonies I read in these books makes me almost jealous of, of what they've been able to experience and how they've been able to see God move and and the, the richness of their faith. And, you know, it's not, it's not easy. It's not glamorous. But, but they're also not complaining about it. You know, the, uh, I've, I've heard stories in like the, the true Chinese church uh, would considers prison your seminary. You know, like if they if if a Christian hadn't been through prison yet, it's like they kind of wonder how much knowledge they really have uh, because because of how much you learn about Christ and and your faith in prison. So, you know, even, I just say that to say that even the worst case is not the worst case that we think of. It's you know if if we stay strong in Christ and walk with Christ then, you know, even the worst case isn't, isn't the end of the world because we have all of eternity where everything will be made right. Did I was having a conversation with a brother just a couple of weeks ago who has a beautiful young family and he was asking, you know, what do I do about some of this? And, um, 
I said, well, what, what's the absolute worst thing that can happen? And he said, uh, I get arrested and my family is tortured and killed. I was like, okay, yeah, that's pretty bad. But what does scripture say about that? And the more we talked about it, it's, again, it's not something to make light of, you know, bad is bad. We're not trying to say that bad is good and that we, that pain doesn't matter or suffering is, is moot. That's not the point. The point is that we are guaranteed by scripture that the Lord has redemption in those things and that those things are eternally rewarded and not to be regretted in eternity. And the question is, do we believe that? If we believe that, then there's nothing else to be afraid of because the worst thing that we can think of, so, so long as we have faith, the worst thing we can think of can't harm us in eternity. And that's the kind of stuff Jesus told people. So don't be afraid of who can harm the body. That that's not where your fear should be. Now that's easy to say when you're not facing, you know, torture directly. But so we say that as much for ourselves as others. And I, I echo Dan's um, sentiment there that it's normal and and expected that there would be some fear. And by the way, for those of you who have been with us for a year, and again we've been producing these these episodes for a year. Those of us, those of you who have gone back through a year with the content. If, if Mystery Babylon was one of your earlier exposures to these kinds of things, then at some point during the course of the year, everything started to look a little bit off kilter. You're kind of walking around in a little bit of a daze going, wow, do I need to pay my taxes? Like, what do I do now? And I want to assure you, first of all, that that feeling doesn't last forever. That's normal. I remember, I, I can I doesn't, don't need to go into it, but I remember the first time I started really opening my eyes to some of this stuff. And there's a period of some weeks where it's just like, what on earth is going on? And if you're a man, it's a period where your wife worries about you quite a bit. But on the good news, you know, you start spending a lot of time in scripture and going, I got to get to the bottom of this stuff. And you think you'll get it figured out. And then years later, you're still going down more rabbit holes. But the, the disorientation of it all doesn't last forever. That weird slight vertigo that you get proverbially or maybe even literally, that doesn't last forever. Eventually, you come back around. You go, well, the sun came up. The electricity is still on. I still have to go to work. I still got to pay taxes. Uh, my family still needs me. My kids are going to school. We still need uh, shelter and food and clothes. And um, by the way, the things that I like, I still like. And, and the things that you don't like are because you're changing thoughts on them. Like maybe there are shows you used to like that you don't like anymore. Maybe there are stuff that you used to read that you don't want to read anymore. Certain music that you go, I'm not going to listen to that anymore. And that's good. That's that's a process of sanctification when the Holy Spirit starts to convict you on that. So you will be changed by going down these rabbit holes. You will be changed by starting to see scripture with unveiled eyes. Um, it should change you, but it should change you into somebody who's more stable and more hopeful and more joyful, not somebody who's, uh, fearful walking around in a daze, but it, it should also unclench your hands from this world a little bit. So, Brian, anything to add before we uh, wind it up here? Well, I frankly, I am excited about all this stuff. It charges me up because, I mean, my day job is a computer guy and working in corporate America, and that's pretty mundane, right? This is not mundane. And this continues to expose and show the reality of the spiritual realm <clears throat> that exists and the forces that are arrayed against each other. And we all have our parts to play. And in terms of 
getting anxious about things that could happen. You know, we are called to live by faith. And in Hebrews, it says that faith is the assurance of things that we hope for and the conviction of the things not seen. So you're supposed to take it as it comes. And you're trusting that God has your best in mind for what's coming down the pike. And you have to make choices based on that. And your choices are informed by your knowledge and understanding of scripture and your relationship with God through Christ. And so to me, it's, it's actually super exciting. And I know that's probably a weird sentiment, but um, whenever I hear about new things happening or new research that's been unearthed and things that validate uh, these biblical worldviews that we've been talking about for the last year, I'm just, I'm like, yeah, let's keep going. Let's bring it on. And yep, some bad things can happen, but I try to remember, you know, uh, in America, I think it's one of the hardest places or the Western world. It's one of the hardest, hardest places to develop and have deep faith because we don't want for anything. And most of the world doesn't have running water and electricity. And we consider it a hardship if we don't have running water and electricity. And so our mindset is very full of all the resources at our fingertips. Even the poor among us aren't, aren't poor by the world standards. And we know that. And <clears throat> I grew up very poor and there were times that I didn't have food and times I didn't have electricity and times I didn't have running water. And those were all based on the decisions of the people in my life that were supposed to be caretakers. But now I don't, I don't even think about those things on a daily basis, but I'm called to have faith and I'm called to follow in that. And everything that I do, I'm supposed to use the eyes of faith to see what's coming down the pike. And so that's what I try to do. And that's what I encourage everyone to do. Faith is hope right? It's the assurance of what you hope for. And that can be a long-term hope or it could be a short-term hope for the next two hours or tomorrow or what have you. But we're supposed to just rest in that faith and trust that God loves us and he does have our best interests in mind. Now, sometimes those best interests are to put you through a trial to make you into a more Christ-like person. That's not fun, but it is beneficial. So that's all I would say on that topic. So on, on the topic of, of being excited, Brian, um, you know, I, I was thinking we are, we were created to live in the time that we're living in, right? God didn't make us in like, we just by random chance happened to live when we're living. Um, so there's, there's a lot of crazy things going on in the world, but God created us with, with work to do. And he has things for us to do. And so it's important to uh, be mindful of that and to be doing that, be doing those things and, and to be living, living for Christ and uh, spreading his gospel and knowing him more, loving him more and helping others to come to know him. Well, amen and amen. Um, and amen. <laughs> uh, great words from both of you. Um, 
and thanks so much for uh, joining me in that conversation. I just I do want to make sure we come back to that because I, I was recognizing that I think we spend a lot of time freaking people out and we do bring things back to Christ, but sometimes we don't bring people back to the reality of how do we then walk as Christians? And what when you walk with Christ, how do we then respond to these things? And I think if you keep in mind what we just said and then go back and read in the Gospels the kinds of things Christ was frequently saying to his disciples or go read in Paul's letters when he talks to uh, the churches about the end times, you're going to see that kind of stuff, that it, it comes down to the basics and we're, that we're not, he, there aren't things that say, um, you know, go go prep and get dig the deepest possible bunker and alienate from society because, uh, you know, if an asteroid's coming and if you're under it, it doesn't matter how deep your bunker is. It does matter where your faith is. <laughs> so those are uh, the kinds of, you know, the kinds of practicalities we have to keep in mind. And I'm, um, I'm not trying to secretly say something about an asteroid, guys. I'm just using that as, a, uh, as an example because it's come up. So um, all that being said, dear listeners, we are very grateful for the wonderful year you have spent with us over these last 20 episodes. Um, many of them multiple hours long, including this one. Well, there's a, we don't have a ton of episodes, but we do have a ton of content if you go back and listen to it. I continue to meet people, including new people, who are saying, hey, I love your podcast. Like, oh, great. How'd you find it? So thanks so much those of you who are posting this and sharing it. We're continuing to see growth in the numbers and in the people who are uh, finding this. And I really hope that as you listen to these episodes that you are also feeling like this is content that people need. And I hope you're sharing it with Christians and non-Christians alike. First of all, uh, Christians for the kind of practical discussion we just had and for the hope that it offers as well to non-Christians, but also for non-Christians to see that the Bible has answers to the kinds of crazy things that are going on in the world even outlaw Peruvian miners with jetpacks. So thanks for joining us. We love you and we look forward to the next episode.